Let's pick it up where we left off, Mark chapter nine. We covered all of chapter eight on uh, the weekend, uh, and now we're picking it up in Mark chapter nine. Seems like in this world, we often see things go from, you know, light to dark. Um, it's the uh, law of entropy, uh, from order to disorder. Uh, things go from okay to worse, usually. That's the natural flow of things. That's why evolution is so ridiculous. There's nothing modeled in the universe that is going from disorder to complete order. We don't see that anywhere, uh, except the evolutionist is trying to say, no, we, we went from goo to you. And, um, and it took billions of years. That's why they have to say it was just an accidental set of circumstances. So it took billions and billions of years to just accidentally fall into uh, what we know as God's beautiful and amazing creation. And uh, so I hope, I hope if you're still hanging on to the evolutionary wackoness that you'd really rethink that. I know your professors in college sounded very intelligent and uh, your teachers in high school and all that, but um, take a really hard look at it. And there's some great scientific work that's being done even today that talks about how even the secularist atheists are saying, we gotta get off this evolution bandwagon because it's, it, it breaks down, it doesn't work. It's not logical, it's not scientific. Um, check it out, you can, don't just take my word for it. But um, uh, anyway, all that to say, the one, the one person who can go from bad to good or, or from good to even greater and better and better is the Lord is the one who's the creator. He's the one who can create everything, including energy and mass, time, space. The Lord is the one, he's the origin of all that. Well, Brett, you just believe God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, how do you, where'd God come from? Well, at least I believe something created something. You believe if you're an evolutionist, nothing came from nothing. Uh, that's even more craziness, uh, if you ask me. I, you have more faith than I would ever have to believe evolution some, from nothing to something. I believe there was something, God. See, Christianity presupposes God um, and his existence and his all-powerful ability to create. And uh, it shouldn't shock us when we realize that um, right now, you know, Jesus is on the scene here in the Gospel of Mark, and we're gonna see him in his glorified uh, sort of uh, condition, just for a moment. Uh, what's that all about? Why is the transfiguration in the gospel important? Um, we're gonna see a transformation from Jesus, who's already light, but even to brighter light, if you would. And we're gonna see Jesus in his power and his, his kingdom. Uh, now keep in mind, um, this, this is interesting. Uh, um, if you remember when we were in Matthew's gospel, we had a kind of a funny little uh, deal that um, basically we were trying to say, why does Jesus give us this verse about how the disciples, he said, some of you guys uh, uh, will be able to see the coming of my kingdom and you won't see death until that happens. And so the critic of the Bible says, well, all those disciples, uh, they all died and Jesus didn't come in his kingdom. So Jesus was wrong. And if you look at the Matthew account, in fact, <laughs> we haven't even touched Mark yet. Keep your finger here in Mark. <laughs> Go with me to Matthew chapter 16. I wanna show you uh, what I'm talking about. Maybe this will refresh your memory. But you know, we have the whole story of you know, Jesus uh, asking, who do you say that I am? Mark chap pardon me, Matthew chapter 16. And Peter answers and you know, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, that whole uh, scene. And then Jesus says, I need to go to Jerusalem. I'm gonna die and be crucified, but I'll rise again on the third day. Um, 
But then at the end of that whole thing in Matthew 16, 28, Jesus said, verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. And so people say, see, the Bible's full of contradictions and errors because Jesus never came and the disciples all saw death. But if you remember, what's the answer to that? Does anybody recall if you were with us in Matthew? Yes, the transfiguration, the next chapter. Um, in fact, I mentioned that um, perhaps verse 28 should be the first verse in chapter 17. Well, Brett, isn't the verses and chapters anointed by God? No, they were added thousands of years after the Bible was given us, or hundreds, I should say, hundreds and hundreds of years after the Bible was written and given to us. And I'm thankful for chapters and verses, but don't let those chapter breaks throw you off. Uh, they're there just for organizational purposes uh, so we can find scriptures and stuff, which is great. Um, so Matthew, uh, the, the people who put the verses and chapters in, they tacked that verse on at the end. Now flip back to our text here in Mark chapter nine, and it's the first verse in chapter nine. Uh, I think this is a more appropriate verse division, the way Mark does this, because we have the same thing. We have the Caesarea Philippi, who do you say that I am? The same thing that happened in Mark 16 happened in Mark chapter eight, only the... Uh, the, those that divided up the chapters rightly put the verse at the beginning. It says in verse one of chapter nine, and he said unto them, verily I say unto you that there shall be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Same verse at the end of chapter 16 of Matthew. Um, why is it important? Because what's about to happen is in fact the, 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 the vision of Jesus in his glory, in his coming kingdom. Um, and so Jesus says, some of you, some of you will not see death. Now, um, some people have tried to say, well, that's Judas because Judas is gonna die uh, and he's gonna go to hell because he's the son of perdition. And so maybe it's the other disciples. That's why he says some. No, some meaning three. Some of you will see, and that is Peter, James, and John who are about to go up the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and they're gonna see him in his glory. Um, that's, that's how we see this. So don't let, don't let the Bible cynics or critics, you know, try to take you out with saying, see, the Bible's wrong. They all saw death and is Jesus's kingdom uh, coming. One of the things about the kingdom that I always like to re rehearse in our ears, because I, you know, I don't want us to forget this, is um, for a kingdom to exist, you have to have what? A king. And so we do know the kingdom of God, it, it does exist. Um, Jesus even talked about how the kingdom of God is among you. Um, that's because Christ is in his church. Uh, while we're not seeing the full uh, expression of his kingdom that's going to be in the future, he's still the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he's still the king of a kingdom. Um, but his kingdom is not of this world. So we don't really see it right now, the kingdom. Uh, we do, we get little snapshots and glimpses of Jesus and his glory and his kingdom. Uh, but we're gonna see that in its fullness later on. So this is, how long would it take before these guys would see this that he's talking about? Uh, 10 years? No, six days. It says that in verse two. It says in verse two, and after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so, uh, so as no fuller on earth can white them. So, um, so we have some things, I always like to ask the who, what, where, when, why of all these stories. Um, and the first question I would just ask, uh, just to kind of get squared away tonight is, where did they go? 
uh, well, it's interesting. It tells us here they went um, uh, up this mountain uh, and it says into a high mountain, leads them to a high mountain, um, you know, exceeding high mountain, uh, one of the passages say. So, so what mountain is it? Um, well, if you go to Israel and you say, hey, where's the Mount of Transfiguration? Most people will point you to Mount Tabor. Um, but I don't believe that's where this happened. Uh, um, why did they believe it was Mount Tabor? Um, because Mount Tabor is a kind of a famous Bible mountain. It's where Deborah fought. Um, and if you go there, there's a whole uh, building built there. But I believe it was actually Mount Hermon. Uh, I did a little trip to Mount Hermon. Uh, there's a ski lift there I wanted to show you. I've, I think I've shown this a few times before, but just so you know, this, this is about 5,000 feet above sea level, which is um, you know, amazing because you just come from Galilee, which is below sea level. And they got a snowman there because it snows on Mount Hermon and they have a ski lift. They, they snowboard up on this hill during the winter time. Uh, and it's uh, very, very, it's the highest mountain in Israel. Uh, there's me going up the ski lift uh, in the summer. Uh, I didn't really wanna hike to the top of the 5,000 feet, so I decided to take the ski lift. Um, you'll notice I was the only one on the ski lift, but, um, but uh, it was a beautiful spot. You could overlook into Syria uh, and even Lebanon. There's, there's a military presence because it's near the Golan Heights border there. Um, and all kinds of military, you can see blown up tanks and all kinds of war uh, paraphernalia left from previous engagements up there. But it was right here on the top of Mount Hermon, I believe, and, and honestly, most scholars would say it was probably Mount Hermon at the top of this hill in, in uh, Israel. Now, um, uh, you might say, well, Brett, that's great and everything, but wh why did... Uh, why did they, this is me. Uh, no, I like that picture. This is me standing over in, remember this is Nazareth looking down the hill from Nazareth. I showed this a few weeks ago, but, um, and this is where Jesus grew up. But that, as you look out over the valley there, the Valley of Armageddon, you'll see right off from that, there's Mount Tabor. Uh, and the, at the top of that mountain uh, is where they, they put the, ch the church of the transfiguration. Uh, and, and why do they think it's that? There's no real biblical reason why that should be the mountain. The reason they think that's the mountain is um, uh, Constantine's mother, she walked around Israel declaring where things were. Uh, back when she was, uh, you know, Constantine's mother, she came down and said, I believe this is where the transfiguration took place. And so they, they deemed it or dubbed it the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, uh, so I just want you to know that's um, probably not the place. Uh, uh, you say, well, what's the difference? I don't know, if you go to Israel, I always like to be as accurate as, as possible, not just go with the traditional sites. That's, that's what you'll hear. You'll say, well, which site is this? They'll say, oh, this is the traditional site. If they say traditional, that's a buzzword for probably not the site. Um, uh, you really have to talk to the Bible scholars and the archeologists, I think, to know where really most of the locations are. But you don't, don't trust Helena uh, for all those things, uh, Constantine's mother. Um, but the, the location probably isn't as, as important as uh, what happened there. The, the fact is, I, I want us to get the vibe. Um, you know, Peter, James, and John went to a very high mountain with Jesus. Uh, this was quite a journey. Uh, it would have been a, probably a couple days uh, journey from where they were hiking to where they got to the top of Mount, uh, Mount Hermon. Uh, and notice it says here that they, they, you know, it says here they took them apart by themselves. Um, and, uh, and this was part of the, part of the deal. Um, uh, Jesus wanted just Peter, James, and John. Why do you think Jesus brought only Peter, James, and John? Um, I've read many different 
opinions on this. Uh, you know, some say, well, they were the most anointed of the disciples. They did the most things after Jesus died and rose from the grave. They were the inner circle. Um, and in some ways you could make that argument. Um, I've heard other scholars and Bible teachers like, like Jay Vernon McGee, who I very much appreciate and love Jay Vernon, who's in heaven right now. But Jay Vernon said, uh, he, <laughs> this kind of cracks me up, his theory. Peter, James, and John went up there because Jesus had to keep an eye on them. Um, <laughs> and uh, they needed to be sort of handheld to say, okay, come on up here with me, you guys. I got something to do. Um, I don't know. That could be. That's possible. Um, but, but all that to say that, um, you know, the church of the transfiguration on this mountain here has, you know, statues of Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Uh, and it's funny, there's actually three sanctuaries, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. Isn't that exactly what they weren't supposed to do if you know the story? Uh, which is always funny to me how people kind of miss the point uh, as they did. And that's probably the number one reason why I don't like to go to Mount Tabor to see this Mount of Transfiguration. Um, but um, uh, all that to say, uh, one thing I always appreciate about, appreciate about Jesus's example to us is he would take time uh, away uh, for intense times to seek the Lord. Don't forget that. That needs to be part of your, your walk too. Jesus went apart, it says here, uh, into a high mountain apart by themselves. Um, somebody once said, if you don't come apart, you'll fall apart. And that's a good idea. If we, if we come apart, just to say, I'm gonna get a, the word apart. Uh, it means apart from your phone, apart from your f- friends, apart from your job, apart from all the busyness of this life and come apart and, and tune in and focus your attention, your affection, your prayer, your asking, uh, your seeking. Uh, you have focused that. Um, when was the last time you just took time apart? Not for vacation, just for, with the fam. That's great too. But, but what about just getting away to seek the Lord for very specific reasons? Um, that's something we see Jesus doing all the way, all the time. Uh, and Jesus told us, you know, in Matthew six thirty three, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these other things will be added unto you. So um, the first thing we, we say, where did they go? It was, it was very likely Mount Hermon. Well, what did they see when they got there? Well, that's where we pick it up in verse two. It says, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up to a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, as, so as no fuller on earth can wipe, uh, white them. So what did they see? Uh, this is, we went over this a little bit in Matthew 17 when we were talking about the transfiguration in Matthew, but I'll remind you of that word metamorpho, which is the Greek word. We get our word metamorphosis from. You remember that time we taught about that, talked about that. Um, what did this look like? What did the transfiguration of Jesus look like? Um, I think, you know, minimally we think, well, he was shining bright like a light bulb. But I have a hunch it was a lot more than that. You know, uh, when you get these descriptions from Bible characters, you definitely get an impression, don't you, that they, they fall short. Like words fall short of what they're probably trying to tell us that happened. The, you know, as white as white, as white uh, more than any whiter person, you know, fuller on earth, more than you could ever see, clean, perfect, pure, white. Um, that's the idea. And so it's, it seems to me like this is another one of those descriptions that are beyond description. I get that sense, don't you, when you're reading the book of Revelation and John's explaining things in the future um, and you wonder, what's he explaining? 
And, and it causes the imagination to run wild. And you have to be careful with that in the book of Revelation. But when John's writing about future warfare, he writes about how there's these giant locusts with fire coming out their nostrils and there's faces of men and they have hair like women and they you know, were like bugs. Uh, could he be describing an Apache helicopter? Like, how do you describe that in the first century? You're like, I saw a big bug, uh, huge. That's pretty good description with faces of men and fire coming out of his nostrils. That, that sounds like an Apache to me. Uh, I don't know, but um, uh, you, get, you get a sense these Bible people trying to explain things. I think the Mount of Transfiguration is one of those things that probably was really hard to describe. And, and especially when you know what's going on here and why it's happening. You see, what did they see? I, I think they saw, um, they saw uh, the brightness uh, of Jesus as he will be in his coming kingdom. That's why uh, we're gonna see Jesus in his glorified state. So is it just shining bright? Probably it's more than that. There are descriptions, by the way, of a glorified Jesus, Revelation chapter one. Uh, even Ezekiel kind of does an amazing description of the glorified Jesus, but it's way beyond description where like even Revelation, he's got the eyes of fire and, um, you know, uh, and a sword coming out of his mouth. We got descriptions of, uh, you know, power and authority. I wonder if the disciples saw something a little more of that uh, in this transfiguration. Don't know for sure. But um, the Greek words here are interesting to look at. When it says in Mark chapter nine here, uh, when it says, verse three, that his raiment became shining. Um, uh, the word shining, the Greek word there is uh, uh, stilbo, which means to shine or glisten, which is interesting. Now in Matthew 17, uh, uh, Matthew uses an entirely different Greek word in the text. Um, the word he uses is lampo. Can you guess what word we get from our English word, from this Greek word? Uh, a lamp, uh, which is great. Uh, I, like, I like this Greek word because there's so much about Jesus. Jesus is the word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And thy word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So I love how the Bible just totally connects everything all together when you really think about it. You can just keep going with that kind of imagery from the Bible. But it's funny that Matthew uses lampo, uh, um, but the idea is glistening, sparkling, shining. But the, 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 the idea of the lamp, the word lamp means shining from the inside out, which is kind of interesting. It wasn't just like a big bright light shining on Jesus. It's almost like Matthew's word indicates that the, the source of the light came from Jesus. Uh, Hebrews 1, 13 talks about Jesus in his brightness. And the word there, brightness, is even a different word talking about the brightness, the light of Jesus Christ. Um, that word is apogasma, which uh, when it says, you know, uh, it's the, he comes into the brightness, you know, of his coming, uh, that word means shining forth, light coming from a luminous body. I wonder if that's part of what Peter, James, and John saw when Jesus was transfigured. Um, how did the Renaissance painters try to depict the glow from Jesus? This always cracks me up. Am I alone in this? It's always a white plate behind his head. Um, uh, <laughs> it's like, that's how he glowed. Now, um, now by the way, uh, this, this picture is taken from the Mount of Transfiguration the, the church of the transfiguration that I just told you about that's on Mount Tabor, where this is one of those temples they built to Jesus where uh, they showed the plate behind his head. I believe he wasn't just having a plate behind his head. 
Uh, I think he was glowing everywhere he went uh, um, and uh, shining from the inside out. Even his clothes shined somehow. Uh, so it, it's a magical, supernatural, godly kind of glow that we can't really even know for sure how it looked. That's the thing, it's, it's bright. Um, so uh, by the way, um, one of the things that I, I look forward to, did you know you and I get to enjoy this also, this transfiguration? Um, you know, uh, there's coming a day someday where you and I, what's gonna happen? When we see him, we will be what? Like him, that's uh, 1 John 3, 2, where it says, you'll remember that uh, we beheld his glory, the glory is the only begotten son. And, um, and then uh, uh, John 1, 14, uh, you know, uh, reminds us uh, that, um, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna be like Christ. It's, it's such a great thing. We beheld his glory, the glory of the begotten, and when we see him, we will become like him. Now, uh, you say, well, good for us, but what about now? I feel very dark right now. Um, well, that's where we have to remember what Romans says. Uh, I think that we're a work in progress, but he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Um, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The word transformed there, and that, uh, does anybody know the Greek word for that? Hello? Yeah, metamorpho, same word. Isn't that great? The same word when it says Jesus was transfigured, metamorpho, metamorphosized. The same word is used in what the Lord wants to do in and through you, metamorpho. That's, that's kind of cool. The Lord is doing that. And so be not conformed to this world. Oh, the world's trying to cram you into its conformity. But as Christians, you and I need to realize that's not what we should be doing. Don't become more like the world, but be ye metamorphosized, changed, transformed into, um, into what the Lord wants us to be. Uh, and let your light so shine before men. This is what Jesus talks about. The same light that Jesus has, he wants to shine through us. Uh, and we can be transformed. And man, a lot of us, you know, I've seen this. Have you seen a, a person who lived in total darkness and had a dark demeanor, a dark, you know, kind of deal, and then suddenly they're saved? And you realize that there's a total trans transformation. Um, it's interesting because my parents, uh, before they were saved, um, you know, I was, I was just a baby when they uh, were saved. So I really didn't know them as, uh, you know, as non-Christians. But I've heard stories about my dad in his BC days before he was a Christian. Uh, and, uh, and people tell me he was kind of a scary guy. He, he, like he, he, he used to steal stuff and he was, uh, you know, from cars, he was a hot rod guy. And, and so that's the way he got a new transmission. Uh, he would lift it off of a car. Uh, you get out in the car in the morning and try to take off and your gear shifter would be flapping in the wind. And it's like, uh, it's because my dad probably took your transmission. Like he was, he was in trouble with the police and stuff like that. He was, a, he was in car clubs, if you know that from the 19, early 60s. Uh, it was kind of a, a brutal gang fights, all that stuff. My dad was in that. But you know, when he accepted Christ, he was totally transformed. And it's funny because the only thing I have to go on is pictures in our little family photo albums. When you look at my parents in their BC days, there's, there's definitely a darkness. Like, uh, it's, it's, um, like my mom, she, everybody thought she was I Dream of Jeannie. You know, what was her name? Uh, 
Barb Eden. Everybody thought my mom was Barb. People came up in grocery stores asking for her autographs. But, um, but, um, but, she, but she still, before she was a Christian, she still had this kind of darker demeanor, like uh, not as happy and, and just kind of a, but as soon as she accepted Christ, in fact, that's what made my dad become a Christian. My mom accepted Christ and my dad came home and said, he, she, she was like glowing. Uh, and he said, whatever you have, that's what I want. And so my mom explained, she had read the Bible and accepted Christ. And then my dad accepted Christ. And you know, my, I've watched my parents shine their light uh, to many, many people over the years. And that's, that's, that's a transformation. That is, it's fun to see when the Lord does that metamorpho. Uh, and maybe that's happened in you. Maybe you've seen that in others, but man, may the Lord shine even brighter through us uh, as we get closer to his coming. So uh, pretty, pretty cool stuff. So uh, where they went, Mount Hermon, what did they see? The transfiguration or the metamorpho of Jesus uh, as he will be seen in his kingdom, his coming kingdom. Uh, the next question is, um, who else did they see there? Who did they see there with Jesus? It says, verse four, <clears throat> and there, were, uh, there appeared unto them Elias, which is the Greek way of saying Elijah, um, with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Um, now this is interesting because um, do you, they're, they're talking with Jesus and people stand around going, well, um, you know, what was Jesus and Moses and Elijah uh, talking about? Well, I'll show you that in a second. Um, we do know what they were talking about as it turns out. But um, interesting, uh, you know, Jesus speaking with Moses and Elijah. Now, this should put to rest any of you, especially you Portlandia people that may be from across the street over there at the Buddha temple, um, think that uh, reincarnation is the way things are gonna happen. Uh, notice with me, Moses and Elijah are not reincarnated from something else. Um, Elijah didn't, didn't come back as a, a rock or whatever. Um, he, he just came back as Elijah. Moses was Moses, not someone else. By the way, uh, re reincarnation always cracks me up because have you ever talked to someone who believes in reincarnation? And they always, they always give themselves sort of like, I was once, and, they, and it's always something great. Have you ever noticed that? I was one, once, you know, uh, uh, Alexander the Great. Uh, or I was Attila the Hun, you know, or uh, uh, Marie Antoinette. Oh, you wouldn't want to be her. Uh, but yeah, like, like uh, it's funny how they always give themselves these beautiful, amazing, nobody ever comes back, I was a shrub. Uh, you never hear that. I was poison oak before I became me. Uh, you never hear that. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite poems, I'm gonna indulge, uh, um, by Wallace McRae. Uh, he wrote, he's a cowboy, an old cowboy, who wrote a poem about reincarnation. Here's how it goes. What is reincarnation, a cowboy asked his friend. Why, it's something that happens when your life has reached an end. They comb your hair and wash your neck and clean your fingernails. <clears throat> they lay you in a padded box away from lack of travails. Now this box and you goes in a hole that's been dug into the ground. And this here reincarnation starts once you're planted neath the mound. Now pretty soon the clods melt down among the box and who you are inside and then you're just beginning on your transformation ride. Then one day some grass will grow upon your rendered mound until one day your moldered grave, uh, well, a little flower is found. Then say by chance a horse should wander by and graze upon that flower that once was you and now has become your vegetative bower. <laughs> now the posse, the horse, uh, 
that horse done ate along with all that rest of his feed becomes fat and bone and muscle essential to the steed. But some is consumed that he cannot use. And so it finally passes through and it just lays there on the ground. This thing that once was you. <laughs> and when I see this on the ground, I wonder and I ponder at this object that I found. And I begin to think about reincarnation, life and death and such. And I come away concluding, old pal, you ain't changed all that much. <laughs> reincarnation, cowboy style. <laughs> um, no, the Bible says, Hebrews chapter nine, verse 27, it is appointed once for a man to die. You don't come and come back some other way. Uh, these are not ghosts, uh, Elijah's ghost. Uh, uh, or Moses goes, there are some curious things about Moses and Elijah surrounding their death. If you know your Old Testament, 2 Kings 2.11, it tells us that you know, a chariot of fire came down and picked up Elijah. He never saw death. So that, that's kind of an easy one. Elijah never saw death. He was just taken up um, along with Enoch. He's another Old Testament character that never seemed to have seen death. Um, now Moses, his uh, suspicious circumstances we read about in Jude chapter one, or there's only one chapter in, in Jude, but verse nine, uh, in verse nine is, you know, remember Michael the archangel when contending with the devil disputed over the body of Moses and did not bring a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. What's going on there where the devil's trying to get a hold of Moses's body? Uh, why? And I believe that there's some hints when you get into the New Testament, the book of Revelation. Um, could it be uh, that one of those guys or both of those guys, Moses and Elijah, and maybe this is why they're appearing with Jesus in this story. Because could it be that they are gonna be seen in the book of Revelation during the tribulation coming back to this earth, even as they came back there in you know, Matthew 17, Mark chapter nine. Um, uh, why are they here in this story? Uh, we'll talk about this in a second, what they're talking about. But I think these are the two possible witnesses of the book of Revelation, as it turns out. Um, you know, uh, by the way, have you ever wondered how did Peter and the guys know it was Moses and Elijah? Have you ever thought about that? Um, you know, they were just dudes from, you know, a couple thousand years earlier. How did, how did Peter go? That's Moses. That was Moses carrying, did he look like Charlton Heston? You know, carrying his big two tables of stone. Oh, that's Moses. <laughs> and then did Elijah have little flames kind of coming out of his fingertips, you know? Because uh, he was the guy always calling fire from, you know, uh, out and burning up people and stuff like that. Uh, Elijah was the powerful prophet. Um, you know, the, the one thing I think uh, perhaps, remember this is, this is Jesus showing what his kingdom's gonna look like. And Jesus is you know, transfigured and, it, and, and we see Moses and Elijah brightly standing there with them. This is more of a kingdom sort of picture. Um, and Peter, James, and John seem to know uh, who Moses and Elijah is. I wonder if in the kingdom, when the kingdom comes, um, even as Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done um, on earth as it is in heaven. So when the coming kingdom, people ask, Pastor Brother, am I gonna know people uh, from this life in, in the kingdom. And I always say, yes, I believe we will. And I, I believe our relationships in the kingdom are gonna be greater. Because if you know, there's not gonna be marriage nor those given in marriage in heaven or in the kingdom, if you would. 
So you, you say, well, that's a bummer. What, what about my poopsie? I'm married to you know, my, my, my hubby or my, my wife. And, and are, we gonna, are we gonna not? Here's the thing. We, we may not have the institution of marriage in the heaven, which by the way, um, I, I kind of am glad about that, not because of any other reason than we have polluted the idea of marriage in our current culture. Uh, whether you're talking about you know what what you know corruption has happened with the idea of marriage in this life in this world, um, and even those of us that are married, we don't we're not good examples of marriage. Marriage was meant to be a picture of the beautiful love that God has for us, that Christ has for His church. That was the the purpose. So so, Brad, is there gonna, what are we gonna? Am I gonna know my husband? You're not gonna be stupider in heaven than you are now. That's good news, isn't it? I'm really glad about that for me. Um, I'm. I think we're gonna know each other and I believe we're gonna know each other better than we ever have. I think our relationships are gonna be deeper and more uh, perfect uh, in the coming kingdom. Uh, so don't be disappointed or worried about that. Um, so so uh, earthly relationships, you know, marriage is probably, the, a beautiful, good marriage is one of the most beautiful uh, illustrations we have of what a relationship should be. But um, those relationships I think are gonna be better when we get uh, into heaven uh, as, as it is. So um, there's another secondary thing here that I'd like to remind us of. Remember when Moses made the mistake of smacking the rock a second time and the Lord didn't allow him to go into the promised land? I love this story because it reminds me that the Lord snuck Moses in. How did he sneak him in? Here's Moses in the promised land with Jesus on Mount Hermon. That's Israel. That's past, that's past the, you know, the border. Uh, Moses never got to go to the promised land in that life, but the Lord said, I'm gonna sneak you in there uh, at the transfiguration, which is pretty cool. Um, that's, by the way, that's how you and I are getting in too, uh, by God's grace. Nothing we did to deserve it or earn it. We're gonna get to heaven by God's grace. So Moses, Elijah, along with Jesus. Um, now, this is kind of interesting because Jesus, uh, you know, Peter speaks up and we're gonna see a mistake here. So, um, so we see, where did they go? Mount Hermon, what did they see? Uh, you know, they saw Moses and Elijah. Um, who did they see? Uh, you know, that Peter, uh, Peter saw Jesus and, and uh, Moses and Elijah. Um, so then we ask the question, well, what did they do while they were there? Well, we'll start with what Peter did, uh, verse five. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and the voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Poor Peter, I, I think, you know, not knowing what to say, he said, and that, that's something we do. Have you ever noticed some of us don't like dead airspace? You know, when things are quiet, you start saying stuff just to fill the space. Um, but you gotta be careful with that one. It's the old statement, you know, better to keep your mouth shut and have people think you're a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Uh, watch out for that one. Uh, speaking when you don't know what to say. And God shuts Peter down here. Uh, why? Peter is making a mistake. And what's the mistake he's making? And, and boy, this is something we could probably debate and talk about what, why, why does the Lord sort of interrupt Peter with his dumb three tabernacle idea? I, 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 I'll tell you what the Lord showed me when I was a young kid, and this has been a life, kind of a life section of scripture for me. And that is 
that Peter was making the mistake of putting Jesus on the same level or of equal value to Moses and Elijah. Now you gotta understand, Peter, Peter, uh, if you were a first century you know, Jew, um, your heroes of your history were Moses and Elijah. Those are the big guns of your history. It'd be like us seeing you know, Abraham Lincoln and George Washington, you'd be like, wow, there's some big figures of the, this nation's origin. And that's only a few hundred years ago. Uh, go back a couple thousand years with the Jewish people, Moses and Elijah, that's a big deal. And you almost get a sense, Peter, not knowing what to say, he's so stunned because he sees Moses and Elijah. Oh yeah, and Jesus is there too, but whatever. It's like, you almost get that sense that Peter's putting Jesus, may, maybe even kind of disrespecting Jesus. That's why God said, hey, uh, Peter, zip it. This is my son. Uh, forget, Mo God doesn't say this is Moses and Elijah and my son. No, he says, this is my beloved son, hear him. Um, I think that was a very important correction. Now, what's interesting about this idea of, um, you know, Jesus being uh, the one that God wants them to hear, uh, let's not make this mistake that Peter makes. I think the church can make this mistake. It's all about Jesus. I love, uh, let's jump ahead to verse eight. Suddenly when they looked around about, they saw no man anymore save Jesus only. Good news for us. What would happen if they looked up and saw Elijah only? Um, I, bet, I bet Peter and James and John, if, if I could guess, would think, oh, sorry, we lost Jesus, but we have Elijah. And they come down Mount Hermon and the other disciples, what happened to Jesus? Oh, I don't know, but we got Elijah the prophet now. Oh, that's an upgrade. Why would that be an upgrade? Well, Elijah's the one that slew 450 prophets of Baal by himself. Like Elijah's the one who called fire down from heaven. That's what we need, a little fire. We need the power. <laughs> Why do I say it like that? Well, there's churches. The power, fly through your veins. You know, I'd be running across the stage, sweating and slaying people in the spirit, throw my coat out and all of you would fall down. We need power, Lord. And there's people that, remember the chasing after signs and wonder people we talked about on Sunday? There's people that do that stuff and they're exchanging Jesus for the power. Uh, big, big, sorry exchange. Some of you say, yeah, Brett, that's right. Amen, brother. We don't want Elijah, we want Jesus. But some of you might not be guilty of that. Some of you might be more guilty of Moses. Now there's a trade. Moses, what if they looked up and saw Moses only? Well, I'm sure Peter, James, and I would think, cool. Uh, yeah, we lost Jesus, that's unfortunate, but we got Moses with his 10 commandments. He'll tell those Pharisees what the law really means. That's what we need, more law, more rules. It's all about the word and scripture and the laws of God. And so there's some people that come down and they become very legalistic rules and, and uh, you know, do's and don'ts oriented Christians. And it can be kind of a heavy burden that people, even preachers can, can lay down the law and it becomes rules and regulations. And boy, that'd be a sorry exchange for Jesus. You see, the reason I think God uh, said, this is my beloved son, hearing him, Jesus was the perfect fulfillment of both the law and the prophets. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of ultimate power. He makes Elijah's power look like pipsqueak stuff. But Jesus also, he, 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 did Jesus know the law? Oh yeah, he, he was the law. He was the law. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God and became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was the law. But he didn't come to do away with the law, but to what? Fulfill the law so that we could, 
as lawbreakers and sinners and people who've wronged the Lord and, and walked contrary to God, Jesus came and fulfilled the law and then died on the cross for the sins of the world for those of us that could never keep the law. No one was ever saved by keeping the law. Um, that's an important thing to know of the Bible. So trading Moses for Jesus, again, would be death, eternal death, because no one was saved by the keeping of the law. How glad I am that they looked up there and saw no man save Jesus only. Um, and uh, all that to say, be careful, Christians. Let's keep a Jesus-centered church. Uh, be a Jesus-centered, Jesus-only Christian. Um, because we love Elijah, we love Moses, and the law and the prophets are wonderful and helpful, but they all are meant to point to Jesus. Don't make the mistake of Peter who, who kind of puts them all on the same plane and says, oh, Jesus is cool too, but the law or the power. Uh, nope, Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all those things. Um, so the last question, I guess, on this, um, what did they do? What were Jesus, Moses, and Elijah talking about? Um, well, you can jot this down in your notes, but in Luke's gospel, he tells us. It's in Luke chapter nine, verses 30 and 31, that says uh, that Moses and Elijah were talking about his decease, which should be accomplished at Jerusalem. That's what it says. When Jesus would go to die in Jerusalem. So Moses and Elijah are talking about Jesus's death in Jerusalem that's about to happen. Remember earlier in our chapter, Mark chapter eight, um, Jesus made that comment, verse 31, he taught the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests, the scribes, be killed, and after three days rise again. And this is one of those times the disciples are like, hmm, that's interesting. Anyway, what's for dinner? Like the guys didn't listen to him when he talked about his death. Now Jesus has at least somebody to talk to, Moses and Elijah, and he's talking about his decease, his death that's gonna happen in Jerusalem. That's Luke 9, 30. Verses, uh, verses 30 and 31, um, which leads us um, basically, why did the disciples, these three disciples get to see this? Um, I, I believe it was to um, see Jesus in his glory, to help them to have more of a, a kingdom mindset, uh, that the kingdom's coming, even as Jesus taught them, you guys pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And uh, they, they got to see a little snapshot of Jesus in his glory. That's why verse one of Mark nine was Jesus saying, some of you guys you know, are gonna be able to see me in my kingdom, the kingdom of God come with power. That's what they saw there. And it was three of the disciples that got to see that. The other uh, did not, the other ones did not. Um, and so, uh, by the way, uh, this idea of Jesus in his kingdom, they are still probably thinking Jesus has come for an earthly kingdom to you know, crush the Romans, to do a revolt uh, and make the Jews in power again and Israel get their nation back. They're still not really clear on the Old Testament teachings. Um, uh, the disciples are not. Um, when Jesus is coming in his kingdom, it's, it's, it's gonna be radical. So in his first coming, he came as a servant to be crucified on a cross. But in his second coming, that's when his kingdom will ultimately be set up. And what will Jesus look like? Probably something like what they saw on Mount Hermon uh, when Jesus rules and reigns from Jerusalem. So um, pretty, pretty cool stuff um, uh, to, to kind of be thinking about. Um, so uh, verse nine, as we continue, it says, and they came down from the mountain and he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen until the son of man were risen from the dead. 
And they kept that saying within themselves, questioning with one another what the raising of the dead should mean. Uh, this is great. Jesus, uh, you know, don't tell anybody until I'm, I'm risen from the grave, okay? And the guy's like, yeah, got it, Lord. What does it mean to be risen from the dead? I don't know, you tell me, I don't know. I wonder. And they, they just really didn't get this. And, and it's easy for us to sort of chuckle at this because we know what it means, but they sure didn't. And I'm pretty sure you and I would be just as stumped as they were, wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree? Um, these poor guys. Um, but all that to say that the transfiguration was a snapshot of the coming kingdom and that's what they got to see. Well, verse 11 and they asked him saying, why say the scribes that Elijah must come first? Now we just saw Elijah there at the transfiguration. So it makes sense that the, the disciples, at least they, they actually have uh, some, uh, some background um, that the, the, the scribes. Now, why would the scribes say Elijah must come first? Well, as it turned out, the scribes who made themselves students of the Hebrew Bible, um, they knew that there was prophecy about Elijah coming. Uh, like a second coming of Elijah. And do you think maybe they were wondering, is that it? Did we just see what the scribes talk about when Elijah was standing there with you, Jesus, on the Mount of Transfiguration? Um, but then in verse 12, Jesus answers. And this, this answer is only gonna probably cause more confusion for them, but it's the right answer. Verse 12, it says, and he, Jesus answered and told them, Elijah verily cometh first and restoreth all things. And how is uh, it is written of the son of man that he must suffer many things and be said at naught. Um, but I say unto you that Elijah is indeed come and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed at his, as it is written of him. Do you get the sense of that answer? The disciples are like, um, oh, thanks Lord for answering the question. Whoa, we don't have any idea what he just said. Um, you definitely get that sense and I'll tell you why. Uh, we read this also in some of the other gospels and um, if you remember, I did a whole thing on this um, when we were in Matthew's gospel, explaining this whole Elijah thing. Uh, I'm gonna try to do it quickly tonight. And, and, and if you want, you can review our Matthew time where we took a little more time in this. But um, why did the scribes say Elijah must come first? We'll jot this down. It's Malachi, the, the last verse of the Old Testament. It says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Isn't it interesting? The last uh, word of the Old Testament is curse um, because we're cursed in sin, cursed under the law. But um, the, the, you know, Malachi, the, the prophet says, um, you know, I'm gonna, Elijah's gonna come. And that's why the prophets, or the scribes, I should say, uh, said that the, the Elijah was gonna come. Now, there's even more sort of confusion. Jesus says in verse 13, Elijah indeed has come and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Uh, does anybody know what Jesus is referring to there? Anybody? Somebody said it, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, well, how do we know that? Uh, well, you gotta do a bunch of comparison of scripture and I'm just giving you the quick version. John, the gospel of John chapter one, verse 21. They asked him what, you know, they're talking to John the Baptist himself. They asked John the Baptist, what then, art thou Elijah? And he said, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, no. So John the Baptist himself said, I'm not Elijah. But Jesus then corrects John the Baptist because John the Baptist was kind of wrong. 
You're like, well, didn't John the Baptist know who he was? Oh, this is where it gets confusing. It's Matthew 11, uh, 11. And this is where, by the way, we, we talked about this in depth, uh, the second coming of Elijah and what that all means and how, what it has to do with John the Baptist. Um, we covered that in detail. But in Matthew 11, 13 through 15, it says, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. John was sort of the last of the prophets. And if you receive it, this is Elijah, which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. When Jesus says, he that has ears to hear, let him hear, it, it, you can almost say whatever he just said was probably kind of hard for us to understand. And also he said, if you'll receive this, in other words, you may not, you may not have the capacity to understand what I'm talking about here, but if you, if you can receive this, um, uh, let him that have ears to hear. Uh, John the Baptist um, uh, is this uh, Elijah. Uh, this is the same conversation uh, in Matthew 17. Jot this one down in your notes as well. Um, his disciples asked him saying, why then say the scribes that Elijah must first come? This is the same passage, equivalent passage of Mark 9. This is Matthew's account of that same thing. His disciples, why did the scribes say Elijah must first come? Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias or Elijah truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elijah is already come and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise, also uh, the son of man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. Um, oh, Brett, I'm, I'm getting a headache uh, about this Elijah and John. Here's the thing, Elijah's gonna come at the end of the age, at the end of the world. That, that's, that's what the prophet Malachi said. That's what the scriptures teach. And I believe that's the two the two witnesses that we read about in the book of Revelation, I believe, are gonna be Elijah and either Moses or Enoch. And, and when I get to the book of Revelation in a couple of weeks, I'll, um, <laughs> I'll talk about why it could be Enoch, why it could be Moses, but I'm, I'm you know, pretty sure that one of those witnesses will be Elijah because of the Malachi prophecy. But Jesus is saying, but if you're willing to really think this through, Elijah already has come in the ministry of John the Baptist. Well, Brett, was John the Baptist literally Elijah the prophet? No, it seems. But what most scholars say is, what Jesus is saying is that the spirit of Elijah was upon uh, um, John the Baptist, which is kind of an interesting thing to think about. And Jesus said, if you can figure this out and understand it, good for you. Let him that has ears to hear, uh, hear. Uh, so Jesus said, John the Baptist really kind of, tech, Elijah technically has come, and Elijah, who was preparing for my first coming, which makes sense that Elijah would be there in preparing for his second coming in the book of Revelation. Um, where do we see that? Would you flip over to Revelation 11 real quick, keeping your finger in Mark 9? Um, Revelation 11, uh, this is where we kind of read about that sort of crazy story of the tribulation period. We will be in heaven at this time. The tribulation's happening on earth. We're gonna be in heaven but when the world's in total tribulation and things are chaotic, suddenly there's gonna be some crazy stuff going on. Revelation 11, verse three. It says in Revelation 11, three, and I will give power to my two witnesses and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days in, uh, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before God of the earth. And that's from Zechariah 4, three, if you remember uh, that Old Testament thing we were in a few, a couple years ago now. Verse five, and if any man will hurt them, this is where it gets crazy. So these two, two 
you know, witnesses are running around. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. So these guys are gonna have some, maybe they had some spicy Mexican food before they went out. They're like, and the fire's gonna come out of their mouth. That's uh, like, uh, that's what's gonna happen. Um, and they're gonna burn up people. Verse six, these have the power to shut heaven that it rained not. Does that ring a bell? Who shut heaven so that it rained not in the Old Testament? Elijah, um, in the days of the prophecy and have power over waters to turn them to blood. Who did that? There's a good reason why I think one of the other ones is Moses. Um, and to smite the earth with all the plagues as they uh, often as they will. Um, verse seven, and when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. So everybody will uh, fail in trying to kill these two witnesses until the beast comes um, and, uh, and kills them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, Jerusalem, uh, which is spiritually called Sodom in Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. We know it's Jerusalem because that's where Jesus was crucified. Verse nine, and they of the people and the kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three, and a half, uh, three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. Oh, come on, Brett, who leaves bodies out in the streets to be seen for days? People in the Middle East, they do that all the time. That's kind of a thing they do. They celebrate their enemies and drag bodies of their enemies um, there you know, uh, in, in the streets. That's, that's a normal kind of practice every day. Well, it goes on, um, verse 10, and they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry, oh, it's like Christmas, and they shall send each other gifts one to another because these two prophets uh, tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And then after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon them uh, which saw them. Uh, now this is, this is shocking. These guys will be killed. They'll be laying dead in the street for three and a half days. And all of a sudden, boom, we're alive, we're back. And no wonder the world's gonna freak out. Uh, they're, they're passing out gifts and making merry uh, because of all that, you know. Um, but, but these guys are gonna be back because the Lord's gonna breathe life into them again. So all that to say, um, uh, by the way, th there's some interesting things. I remember when I was a kid, when uh, we started seeing live streaming TV, you know, we, uh, even, uh, you know, some of the footage of, in World War II, you, know, two, you had to watch the reels at the movie theater and it took weeks for that information to get to the theater and stuff in the reels. But then we started in the Vietnam War, started seeing you know, a pretty current action. And then I forget, one of them was Mogadishu or Somalia where, where uh, during the whole Black Hat, uh, Hawk Down incident, there, we saw live TV actually in front of us uh, in, in a battlefield, which was kind of shocking. And I remember when all that was happening, we were all, as prophecy people, we're like, this is how the world's gonna see these guys. Cause it says the whole world's gonna see it all happen and everybody's gonna freak out in the world. Um, now people will just be watching live stream on TikTok or on uh, you know, Instagram and all the other platforms. They're gonna see this event, these two witnesses that the world's gonna hate. Them, them coming back to life. And uh, it's interesting how that's not even a hard thing to imagine now, the world seeing this um, in real time. But because of what Jesus says, I believe one of these two uh, uh, witnesses are definitely Elijah. The other, probably Moses, maybe Enoch. Uh, I'll go over that later. 
Back to Mark chapter nine though. Uh, we gotta pick it up. Uh, we're losing time here. Uh, but G- Jesus says, if you can handle this, Elijah's gonna come first in John the Baptist, the spirit of Elijah. But he's also gonna come again in the end times. That is the Revelation 11 account. Um, so um, so uh, we pick it up there uh, now back in verse 14. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, what question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which has a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him and foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples and they sh- that they should cast him out, but they could not. And he answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him. And when he saw him straightway, the spirit tear him and he fell down on the ground and wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, how long is it ago since this came to him? And he said, of a child. And oft times it casts him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said unto him, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit saying of him, unto him, thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him. And he was uh, as one dead insomuch that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up uh, and he arose. And when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast him out? And he said unto them, this kind come can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. We looked at verses 14 through 29 uh, a couple weeks ago on, it was Father's Day. That seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? Uh, But we covered this story then. Uh, If you missed it, you can catch up with us on that one. But we went into more detail. Great story of Jesus delivering uh, this poor boy from the unclean spirit. Verse 30, and they departed thence and came uh, and passed through Galilee and he would not that any man should know it. He was trying to go low profile because the multitudes were thronging everywhere Jesus went. Uh, verse 31, for he taught his disciples and said to them, the son of man is delivered into the hands of men that they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. <laughs> but they understood not that saying and were afraid to ask him. This is funny. Uh, what did he mean by that? He just told them in chapter eight, the same thing in verse 31. Now he says it again right here. Um, And it always amazes me. The disciples just didn't say, Lord, we really don't have any idea. Can you be a little more specific? Um, And one of the things I mentioned on Sunday is the disciples, whenever they did that and said, Lord, we don't understand, please explain more. Jesus very graciously always did. Sometimes I wonder if you and I stand around, I don't know what that means in the Bible. When you really could just say, Lord, I don't understand what that means. Can you show me, reveal this truth unto me? Help me to understand. And by the spirit of God, I believe the Lord can help you understand things you don't understand. Uh, That's how we understand the Bible. It's such a great thing about the Bible. I love that. 
Uh, you know, and if you're seeking the Lord with an honest, true heart, I think the Lord is so faithful to do that. Uh, but these poor guys, Jesus was super clear. I'm gonna be killed on the third day. I'm gonna rise again. And what were they doing on the third day? Weren't even thinking about that. Um, that once he was killed, they should have thought, didn't he say something about raising up from the dead? Even Jesus's enemies remembered these statements. That's why they put the Roman guards around the tomb. But the disciples somehow kind of said, yeah, whatever, we don't understand that. It might be that they were so horrified by the idea of their master and leader dying that they just kind of put it out of their minds. That's the way I deal with sometimes those things. When I'm troubled by something or hear something I don't like, I'm like, okay, yeah, whatever, change our mind to talk about something else. Uh, that's probably the way these guys are dealing with that problem. Verse 30, um, uh, pardon me, verse 33. And he came to Capernaum and being in the house asked uh, them, what is, uh, what is it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace for by the way, they were disputing among themselves, who should be the greatest? Oh, this is the, one of the sections I'm sure the disciples are up in heaven. Oh, why did you, why did, Mark, why did you put that in there? We were arguing, here's the greatest of all time, Jesus walking with us. And, and we were walking around going, which one of us is the greatest? Uh, that's embarrassing. Um, <laughs> by the way, uh, I love that story. Uh, remember Muhammad Ali, I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest of all time. I'm the greatest. You know, that was his whole mantra, you know. And, um, but uh, I love the story where he gets on a flight in first class and he sits down in his chair and the plane's about to take off and the flight attendant comes up, uh, Mr. Ali, you know, you need to put your, your seatbelt on. And he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. That's what he said. Uh, and she said, that's correct. Um, but Superman doesn't need an airplane either. So <laughs> please buckle up. <laughs> um, well, they were disputing about which one of them was greatest. So they, they held their peace. They didn't answer Jesus because they knew, knew what he was getting at. Verse 35, and he sat down and called the 12 and said unto them. Now this is a teachable moment. The disciples are doing something stupid. They're arguing about which one's the greatest. Mom and dad, take a note from Jesus. Your kids will do goofy things, but you gotta call a family meeting sometime and say, okay, let's get the kids together and let's talk about what you're doing. I love how Jesus sort of does this. Uh, with his disciples. Uh, he, he calls them all together, sits them all down, it says in verse 35, and said to them, if any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, whosoever shall receive one of, uh, one of such children in my name receives me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. Speaking how even God the Father, if you're taking you know, the least, the child. Uh, and it's interesting because children, I've noticed our culture, we don't like children. We've uh, waged war on children. I'll talk about that in a second. But it started with people just hating children. Uh, we don't want children. That's why abortion exists. And we're not ready for children. What a pain children are. Did you see the footage of the guy freaking out on the flight because there was a baby crying? Um, screaming uh, all, the whole flight. And, and what, what kind of cracks me up is that guy was also screaming like a big baby. Um, uh, and he was one of those babies too. You're all, you all once babies. So next time you're mad at a baby, you were that crying baby at one point. And we tolerated you. So maybe you should tolerate. Like it's funny how people are just angry at children and babies. But Jesus says, you know, the way you receive one of these little children, that, that's kind of the, the key right there. Uh, I hope that you're all kid friendly. 
If you're a person that I don't like children, that's not godly. That's against what Jesus teaches. Uh, if you're one of those people, I don't like children, uh, time to repent from your evil ways. Uh, I'm telling you that from the Bible. Jesus says, man, if you wanna be great, and if you wanna you know, know what's important, you must become the least and become, look at this little child, Jesus says. He uses this as an example. Um, um, and, and he's gonna go into even more about just like how you're, you're supposed to, if you wanna be uh, great, he says there in verse uh, 35, you must become servant of all. It was D.L. Moody there of the, you know, start of the Moody Bible Institute. Uh, he said, the measure of a man is not how many servants he has, but how many he serves. It's a good word. He also aptly observed, we may easily be too big for God to use, but never too small. I wonder if sometimes we get too big for our britches thinking we're all that. And the Lord says, I can't really use that. But if you become small and you become a servant, that's what Jesus is saying there in verse 35. And then he uses the child there um, as an example of, of um, the greatest. And if you receive the child in my name, you're receiving me, not just me, but my father, which is in heaven. Um, very important thing to have a, an attitude to serve and love children even. It's not just about loving children, it's about loving the least is kind of the idea. Well, verse 38, and John answered him saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name and he followeth not us. And we forbade him because he follows not us. He's not part of our team. And he was casting demons out in your name. Verse 39, but Jesus said, forbid him not for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. For whoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. And by the way, I think this is the, one of the basis for our unity as Christians. You know, the, the disciples don't know what to do this guy. He's casting out demons in the name of Jesus, but they, he wasn't part of the disciples team. And Jesus, if he's doing it, if he's casting out demons and he's doing it in my name, he's on our team. And you're either for me or against me. And that's an evidence that you're not against me, um, which is pretty cool. Uh, by the way, um, you know, this is a tricky one in these days because um, there's another side of this coin that we got to talk about. Um, you know, there's many people that will do things in the name of Jesus that are not of the Lord. Um, and we have to be careful with that one. Um, but we're going to see this idea in my name. We see that in verse 38, uh, you know, casting out devils in thy name. Verse 39, uh, we see in my name. Verse 41, coming up, we're going to see in my name. But, um, but, uh, but the name of Jesus, when we use the name of Jesus, the way you know if it's being used correctly or wrongly is, is in the nature of Jesus. You can't use the name of Jesus um, and declare something if it's not in, in his nature. So I've used this example. Like if you hate your boss, and your boss is a jerk. Lord, in Jesus' name, will you please cause my boss's head to explode? <laughs> is that Jesus's nature? No. No, in fact, the Bible, the word of God tells us we're to honor our boss and give honor to him or her and um, not have their heads explode. So you can't say something, you'll know that there's people wrongly using the name of Jesus and those kinds of things. Um, but we have to be careful because you know, we, we have that tendency, well, they're not part of our team. Um, we, uh, different churches, different flavors. Um, now there's, there's some important things about different flavors in different churches. 
The reason we talk about uh, you know, cults and churches that are not part of the true faith when they're, they cross out of essential doctrines, that's, that, that's something that we're supposed to, as Bible teachers, watch and warn the flock about uh, wrong teaching. But then there's a line somewhere where that, that's not, it becomes a cult or a wrong church, not, not truly a, a real Christian church, but where's the line? That's where it gets a little hard because there's a lot of churches that are different than Athey Creek but there's a lot of really good churches. They love Jesus, they're preaching the gospel. Paul even said in Philippians, hey, I know they preach strife and contention, but they preach the gospel, so I'm gonna rejoice. That's what Paul said. Um, so we have to kind of uh, divvy that out and say, are those people uh, using the name of Jesus? And uh, maybe they're a different flavor of a church or different kind of congregation, but nonetheless, they're still Christ followers and we're all on the same team at that point. Um, uh, some take the name of Jesus to twist it and uh, uh, where it's no longer in line with Jesus. For example, uh, Matthew chapter 24, verses four through five talks about, you know, in the last days, Jesus answered said to them, take heed that no man deceive you for many shall come in my name, saying I am the Christ and shall de deceive many. Uh, so you gotta kind of watch out for that. Um, uh, so be careful, jo Jehovah's Witness, they say in the name of Jesus, they talk about that. Mormons talk about the name of Jesus. Islam even talks about Jesus as a prophet, but they're, they're the, the wrong ones in that way. Do you remember, uh, by the way, the church of Sardis there in Revelation 3? I'll, I'll do this quickly because I'm running out of time, but um, you know, a lot of the churches, five of the seven had things against them. Jesus said, I have this against you. But check out what he says to this church. Unto the angel of the church of Sardis, right? These things saith he that has seven spirits of God, the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that's a key right there, a name that thou livest, but you're dead. Um, be watchful, strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come to thee as a thief and thou shalt not know what hour I come unto thee or upon thee. Thou hast a few names even here in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and um, they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So this, this church at Sardis reminds me of a lot of churches today that have not done the holy deeds. They, they, they've um, taken up ungodly worldviews, wokeism and stuff like that. But are they still within the essential doctrines? Maybe, but you almost get a sense of this. And, and there's an interesting word, that word name is the word onoma in the Greek text, uh, where we get our word denomination. That's an interesting thing. Brett, is that why you're non-denominational? Not really. But one, uh, one of the reasons I, I would be almost afraid to be part of some of these denominations, there's denominations out there that once were solid good denominations that even in the last few years have bailed out of good Bible teaching, good, good solid theology. And it's so sad because they have a name, denomina or anomina, which means like dead, they're dead denominationalism. We have to be careful about that. Um, it's funny how non-denominational has kind of become a denomination in and of itself. Uh, we have to watch out for having a name only that we're linked to Jesus and not be a dead church. That's sadly happening uh, all over the place. Well, all that back to Mark 9, we're, we're wrapping it up here in verse 42. It says, and whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that uh, believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. 
This would have been a horrifying imagery for Jews. The sea scared the Jews. Even to this day, the Jews have never really had much of a navy comparatively. Uh, they, they avoided the sea. There was a great fear of the sea. And so for Jesus to say this, and by the way, he said this in a place where they made millstones. So these people knew what a millstone was. A huge round stone that they would tie around a person's neck if, if, if what Jesus is saying here, and throw them in the sea. That means you're dead. Uh, and, um, and so Jesus is saying, if you offend one of these little ones, and I'm afraid there's gonna be many people who will be held accountable for what we're doing today, the horrible things that our culture, our world is doing to children. Whether we're talking about abortion or these stupid, you know, um, uh, drag queen shows that children are watching men strip and do all this crazy stuff. If you're not aware of what's going on, it's happening all over our country, even locally here. And uh, this is an offense to little children. And uh, there's gonna be some millstones, I believe. Uh, better, it'd be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck um, than to uh, offend one of these little ones. Um, I would refer you, by the way, to June's prophecy update where we talked about the you know, Gay Pride Month. In the month of June, our prophecy update was largely about some of these things um, that are going on. And I believe there's gonna be people held accountable before God when it comes to the offending of little children. Well, uh, verse 43, and if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell and uh, into the fire that never shall be quenched. Um, <laughs> now, um, uh, this idea of the fire that should never be quenched. What's that talking about? Well, Jesus goes on and talks about this, but I'm gonna warn you, if you have, I think it's the NIV. Do you have a verse 44 and a verse 46? No, you're missing verses. That's why that's, we call that the nearly inspired version. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just, just kidding. NIV's great. Uh, the reason that some of these verses aren't included in yours is because it wasn't in all of the manuscripts or the, the kinds of manuscripts the NIV translators were using when they were compiling. So now don't be too alarmed. Fortunately, uh, you can read the NIV Bible uh, and still get the essence of the gospel. Uh, but it does bother me a little bit. There's several verses left out, left out. I do love the King James for, it's kind of withstood the test of time. I know that, um, that uh, a lot of you think of the old English and stuff, but to me, it's kind of nice to slow down and, and read it. But uh, let me read for you guys that don't have that verse, I'll read to you what it says. So Jesus said, you know, if your hand offends you, cut it off. It'd be better into, into the, you know, uh, having only one hand or whatever. Verse 44, it says, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And verse 45, if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, uh, into the fire that shall never be quenched. Um, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. That's verse 46. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be uh, cast into eternal hell, or hell fire, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Um, Jesus is quoting this worm dying and the fire not quenched from Isaiah, um, as it turns out. Um, uh, you can look that up if you want to. Isaiah 66, uh, verse 24. Uh, talks about that. But um, you say, okay, Brett, got it. Isaiah 66, uh, 66 24. Uh, the worm, I'm just gonna do a quick one on this because uh, we've talked about this previously. The worm speaks of internal torment that a person has in their soul. Where the, whereas when it says their worm, that means their soul of internal torment. 
where the fire, which is external torment. We're talking about hell, lake of fire, eternal death and separation from God. Um, and that Jesus is just basically giving the huge warning. It'd be better for you to be radical. Like it doesn't literally mean as Carolyn Ingalls on Little House on the Prairie was about to cut off her eye or arm or something. I forget if you remember that series because of this verse. She's reading the gospels and saying, oh, if it offends you, then cut it off. So she was there. Fortunately, I think Charles came and saved her. But um, does it mean to literally cut, cut your eye out or cut your hand off? No, Jesus is making a very clear point that you, you need to cut off those things that are gonna cause you to go to hell. Don't do those things. Cut off the things that um, drive a personnel. Um, Jesus talked more about hell than he did heaven, by the way, for those that say, oh, hell's not a real place. Uh, just, they don't read their Bibles. Um, you know, your hand speaks of where you go, or what you do. Your foot speaks of where you go and your eye speaks of that which you take into your soul. And Jesus is saying, man, run for your life from these things. Be radical about not um, uh, taking in things that are sinful and wrong. Well, verse 49 and 50, for every one shall be salted with fire and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, wherewith will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace one with another. Um, where does the salty thing come from? Levit Leviticus 2.11 talks about how they were supposed to have a meat offering uh, and they, would, they were uh, not allowed to use leaven or honey in their sacrifice, but they were required to use salt. Leviticus 2.13, uh, Leviticus 2.11 talks about that. Salt speaks of purity and, and preservation. Um, and uh, basically uh, in Matthew 5, we read about Jesus said, you are the salt of the world in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. And we talked about the saltiness and how it can lose its salt. Um, so instead of being defiled, millstone, where your worm dies and your, you know, all that, the hell stuff, Jesus is saying, instead, be salty and be different. Go the opposite direction. So that's the, the main gist of what Jesus is uh, saying there. He sits down and gives the disciples that lesson. Pretty powerful stuff. Well, in verse uh, chapter 10, we'll pick up next week. Lord willing, let's pray. Lord, how thankful you are for your word. It is living and powerful. And I pray that you'd give us understanding on all these things, Lord. And we uh, see how the disciples were struggling with understanding. Lord, give us understanding on the things we don't know and help us to apply them to our lives and that good fruit might come from this study tonight. So I pray blessing, Lord, upon uh, this crew and everybody online watching. Lord, bring good fruit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.